Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what are the job descriptions of representatives and senators? To answer that question, we have Dr. Casey Burgett. He is the director of the Legislative Affairs Program at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. Dr. Burgett also has had stints at the Congressional Research Service, and he worked with me back when I was at the R Street Institute. Recently, he and Professor Charlie Hunt authored the book, Congress Explained, Representation and Lawmaking in the First Branch. Casey has been studying Congress and how it operates for years, which makes him a great person to ask the question, what are the job descriptions of representatives and senators? Dr. Casey Burgett, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So it's not unusual for Americans to grumble about Congress and to complain that these elected officials are not doing their jobs. But last I checked, there's no official job descriptions for the positions of representative and senator. So in thinking about what these guys are supposed to be doing, I think we should probably start with the U.S. Constitution, right? It certainly has some clues. Yeah, always, always start with the Constitution. It's, it takes us back to the founding. It kind of sets the, the framework for how we're supposed to think about a lot of these institutional questions. This is one of them. And you're right. The Constitution does pri- provide at least some clues, but perhaps and definitely not as many as we assume are in there, especially in regards to job descriptions, actual duties of senators and representatives that have changed since our founding back in the late 1700s. So it does give things like eligibility requirements of who can serve, right? you got to be 25 years to, uh, old to be in the House, 30 in the Senate, seven years a citizen, things like that. But after that, it gets surprisingly and oftentimes frustratingly sparse in terms of the individuals and what they're supposed to do once they're actually elected. So we have to look a little broader and then do some some deduction in, in, in our expectations of job descriptions. So we can also take some hints about what the individual members are supposed to do based on what the Constitution says that Congress as an institution and even the individual chambers are tasked with. So Congress-wide, all legislative powers are granted to the Congress, right? It's right there at the top, Article 1, Section 1. We're starting there. No debate about it. Congress is the legislative branch. And then when they had agreement, they itemized exactly what other powers Congress is supposed to have to declare war, coin money, and then, Kevin, I know this is for you, establish post offices, things like that, right? We know that they're supposed to do that. And then chamber specifically, representatives are given things like all revenue legislation. They can impeach folks on the Senate side. We get the advice and consent on treaties and nominations, which they've also had to to, uh, specify exactly what advice and consent looks like. And then the Senate can only conduct the impeachment trials that the, the House sends them. So because they are constitutionally tasked with these types of duties, if they don't do them, no one else will, at least in theory, though we know it's not quite always that simple. So 
given that the Constitution gives them these job descriptions as, as an institution and, and as individual chambers, we can deduce at least somewhat that they are part of their constitutional job descriptions, what they're supposed to do. But that's about where the Constitution runs out of the details on exactly what these 535 powerful members are supposed to do every single day. And in fact, the Constitution, the, the vagueness is built right in. They explicitly punt on a lot of these specifics that we oftentimes assume they've detailed for the individual members and Congress as an institution. So they say things like each house may determine the rules of its own proceedings. So it's left up to the members to decide how to operate and organize. This means they have to decide things like what, if any, committees to have. If they have leaders, how to elect them. Ultimately, how to process its business through procedures, especially in regards to legislation. So Congress has changed these things up despite us thinking it's a unbending, unmovable, slow operating things because uh, institution because it has been. They've changed these things over time to suit the wants and needs of its membership. But getting back to your original question about the frustration, this ambiguity, this letting them figure it out on its own and changing it as they see fit. It's absolutely contributed to that frustration with Congress you mentioned in your lead up that precisely because we don't have explicit job descriptions, it's not like throwing a, a job posting up on Indeed of senator and representative. It's, it's, it's up to all of us to decide exactly what these powerful people should be doing with their powers and their hours. And surprise, surprise, when we don't agree, we inevitably get frustration because Oh, you can't be everything to everyone at the same time. This is nothing new and has been a constant challenge for members since the get-go. So I think Americans also tend to have conflicting feelings about representatives and senators. On the one hand, they'll say, you know, look, you guys just need to get things done. And on the other hand, they'll say, well, why aren't you deliberating more? Why aren't you bargaining? And then on the other hand, they'll say, well, you need to stick to your principles and quit doing all that compromising horse trading. The very nature of the kind of body of Congress itself, that it pulls these people from all over the place, these different interests, and throws them into a big soup bowl together, seems to create its own theoretical problems with the expectations we should have for members, right? 100%, right? We are full of contradictions, as, as, and as my therapist wife will tell you, it really, really helps to admit it. Right. This then we can st- get past the lazy answer of what they're supposed to do, the bumper sticker version of, of all this stuff. And then we can really have conversations about what Congress is supposed to do and what's possible, given all those contradictions baked right in the system. So it's not every few months we'll see a survey of Americans saying, yeah, the vast majority of us, 90 percent of us say, go get something done. Go find common ground, compromise on things, go get things done for the American people. That's the lazy version. Right. Because then we get down to the individual incentives of where these people are, who these people represent, because the thing you want to compromise on is the thing that I deem as a principle that is uncompromised. And in fact, the minute that my rep- representative compromises on an issue like that, I'm looking for someone else to take the job. And then we see this baked into like campaign platforms of where they'll say this explicitly. Send me there to stop them. Send me there to stop President Trump or President Biden. This is my message. Now, that is where I promise you that I'm uncompromising on that. And then it's spun in a way of standing up for principles. And so this just gets to the, the tried and true conflict that we've had since the beginning. The purpose of this is that we take all of these constituencies, all of these collective action problems 
elect some people to be our voice and then say, good luck. And then we blame them for when we don't get feel represented on the one thing that, that really, really matters to us. That is not across the board, even within a, a district, let alone a state, let alone a country. It is just an incredibly hard job that leads to incredibly unrealistic expectations, which lead to incredible frustration that is just easy to capitalize on. So it's an impossible job. And I'm sympathetic to the members that have to, to navigate this every single day. Yeah. And you just mentioned something that's important which is that we have senators whose job it is, is to represent whole states, whereas you have representatives who are supposed to represent districts. Yet at the same time, they both come to Washington, D.C., and they're supposed to address matters of national concern, not merely local or parochial, which is another tension within there. Let's set that aside and go to another thing that pulls at us when we think about the role of representative and senator. And your book mentions these classic terms from political science. They go back a long, long time. Viewing the job of the legislator to be a delegate versus a trustee. For listeners who have yet to read your book, what do you mean by these? Well, first, let's just reject the premise that not every single person has already read the book, right? Let's just assume they have. But let's say they're doing a cocktail party where this is going to come up and this is going to be the sexiest conversation that we're going to have, right? And so political scientists have have helped us try to create a framework where we can quickly see the, the frustration with members of Congress as they attempt to satisfy, impossibly satisfy everyone with every single issue at every single moment. And so the framing is creating two classifications of members, right? The first one is a delegate where members of Congress should do exactly what their constituents want them to do with no variation, right? They, as the representatives of the people, the people that we gave our vote to, they should represent the will of their constituents. They're effectively given instructions on how to vote on issues, what to care about, what not to care about. And it's their job as the person in power to go do exactly those things. Right. That sounds great. That sounds correct in theory. Right. They should represent the will of the people. Right. Then there's this other idea, the trustee model, where members are the pros. They're the professionals. They're the ones who see these issues every single day. They talk about them. They live them. They have access to much more information. And for a ton of issues, there's no possible way that we can have an informed viewpoint. Us, we being the people. Because we're out there living our lives, right? We have kids, we have mortgages, we have jobs. We don't want to pay attention to politics to to this degree. So we elect trustees. We want them to act as our trusted representative and that we use that trust to use their best judgment to make decisions on our behalf. And this also sounds good, but those are not the same things. One is practical and one is theoretical. And there's just simply a ton of things, if we're being really honest, that we don't know enough about or even care enough about that lawmakers have to ultimately vote on, that they have to give a thumbs up or thumbs down. And there's no way that we can give them instructions on all of these issues in a way that is filterable, uh, aggregated up. And then across, I mean, even the, the smallest districts in the country are hundreds of thousands of people. There's not going to be unanimity in in what they agree, let alone uh, unanimity on intensity of how much to care about this. And so it's the the representative's job to represent the will of the people on some things or on all things, 
and then try to, to, to make these impossible calculations of what to care about, how much, when, and then the trade-offs inherently built in the, the policymaking process. So again, this leads to common frustrations with our members. They're not representing us on this issue at this time in the best way. They're not fighting hard enough. At the same time, they're compromising too much or not enough. It's impossible. Yeah. It occurs to me that you know one thing that was on display not terribly long ago when Congress was, uh, the House in particular, was attempting to choose a new speaker, there was the issue of partisanship as being part of the job, implicitly, according to some Americans. Namely, you heard people saying like, hey, the GOP is embarrassing itself. They all should vote unanimously in favor of Kevin McCarthy for speaker. The fact that they are showing open dissent that's a sign of dysfunction. They should do their jobs and just pick McCarthy and move on. Yet at the same time, we often hear the refrain of, gosh, it's always Democrats versus Republican and they're always playing politics. You know, why can't they just focus on the issues instead of partisan identification? So it seems to be another contradiction in our ideas about what these guys are supposed to be doing. 100%. And the, the more we know about voter sentiment and what motivates them to pay attention, which is a very, very hard thing to do to get voters to care enough to pay attention healthily, right, to contribute to the conversation rather than just add volume to it and to show up to vote, to say nothing of volunteering for a campaign, showing up to local political efforts. It's really, really hard to get people to pay attention uh, past the, the the sexy cable news topics that's generated um, for, for you to, to pay attention and basically keep your eyeballs on certain content. So that's hard. And for most people, what we know about voters, the best way to do that, to get them to pay attention is to appeal to their, to their ideological interests, right? Whether they know them, they have them or not. And to lean into their, their in-group versus out-group. And this is where it gets quickly very, very sociological, right? Uh, to an us versus them mentality. And we send our, our members to be a part of us. And if they're representing them too much, then all of a sudden we need to look for someone more like us. And all of a sudden these incentive structures get really, really warped when you think about what the institution is supposed to be and, and the type of products that it can reasonably produce. And so there's definitely a partisan expectation for a lot of voters for their representatives to, to get to DC and represent those in interests. And members, by the way, candidates lean into this, right? They're part of the problem, too, of saying that I'm going there. I am here to represent your interests. I am explicitly not going to be a compromiser or give up on my principles. And that really, really has a down ballot or downstream effects on what's possible in an institution. And then even what the institution decides to focus on. Right. So instead of legislating when you can't reasonably get compromised because that will cost someone their job. You do what else you can do. You provide oversight, you investigate, you you use your resources to, to paint the, the other side as corrupt or unpatriotic or incompetent as a means to, to get more of your partisan leanings effectuated and more of your partisans elected to office. So there's these contributing factors that just create a doom loop of partisanship because we expect our members to be partisan. They told us they would be. Right. And you use the word sociological, which brings up one more thing, that voters frequently judge their representatives, judge their senators based upon these kind of group identifications. So you will have 
a senator who will style himself as the person who is speaking for the forgotten blue-collar American. You will have legislators who come to Congress and say, you know, I was sent here by African Americans and I am a member of that community and my job is to look after their, in, their interests first, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this whole pluralistic aspect that gets poured into this job description, it seems. 100%, right? So we have issue representation, right? Where we ha- say we care about, let's limit the, the universe to say three issues. It's way more than that, obviously, but we have issue representation where we say, okay, there's these three issues. I need a candidate or I need a, a lawmaker to represent me what I believe on these three issues. That's one version of representation, right? Issue representation. There's also demographic representation where it matters that the people elected to the halls of Congress look like us, talk like us, come from where we come from, experience our same experiences. And that's a more demographic representation where it's really hard to have full faith in an institution that only looks like one segment of the population. So independent of the issue representation, there's something to be gained by having demographic representation, whether it's gender or religion or race or ethnicity. All of this stuff matters to create an institution that we can look at and see ourselves in and know that if we're not paying attention on each and every issue, we at least know that these people can relate to us. And so when you only have rich white dudes that are in there debating things that include thing, topic areas and issue areas that rich white dudes fundamentally can't know. So think like of abortion rights, right? Where they can't relate to that. That really matters to say nothing of like single mom issues or public education, healthcare, daycare, all of this stuff. It really, really matters even independently of, of the issues that you come down on. So this is again, what contributes to our frustration that though you can be represented perfectly on all the issues, even if they don't look like you, think like you, act like you, talk like you, come from where you come from, you still have questions about their effectiveness as a representative body. And that matters too. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that there is kind of issue representation versus group or identity representation. And those often overlap. We often see members of Congress who will be accused of not being truly black. Or, you know, hey, you're a woman. The right to an abortion is a woman's health care right, a human right. Yet you as a woman are against it. So you are basically acting like an old white dude and you are not representative of we women. So the issue content gets poured into the identity content, too. Yeah, it's it's again another sign of impossibility that you can never be enough of whatever it is you're trying to be for everyone to satisfy And then you are automatically, depending on where you stand, too much of something, right? You care too much about only women's issues or you only care too much about the wealthy class and 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 the rich, right? So you're for for most people, it depends on again, this will break down a lot pretty cleanly on ideological grounds. Uh, but even then it gets complicated by these identity factors, right? Where for some people you're you're not enough and for the 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 other side of the aisle, you're too much. So there's no great line to be in and you're automatically screwed from the get-go. So now where do we start? Yeah. And looping back to the matters of districts and states and the sort of interests that flow from them. If you're a senator from, say, Kansas versus 
if you're a senator from Florida, your interest in agricultural policy may differ. Your desire to be on the ag committee in your chamber may be different depending on what state you flowed from. So there's that that economic and geographically rooted interests that also kind of flow into it. Absolutely. And this really, really complicates what Congress can and should focus on at any given time, right? So like, if there's not a national pressing emergency, which there always seems like there is that will dominate the attention of both chambers at the same time, then it becomes a contest for attention, a floor time of what bill to use and what issue to respond to. And if you poll 435 House members, and there's no pressing need there nationally, you're going to get what, 400 plus answers of what Congress should be doing. And then there's no assuming they can get agreement on what they should be doing. There's no agreement on where to start, what vehicle to use, what constituent to see to respond to. And so this is where it's really, really hard to have a country as diverse as us, as big as us, and as polarized as us, get in one room and come to an agreement on on what to pay attention to, let alone what bill to vote on, let alone what to pass. It's just really, really hard. And that's kind of built into the design, in fact, explicitly built into the design. But we forget that, right? We promote checks and balances. We say that we want things to be slow and hard and arduous. And then we get frustrated with the messiness of politics, the loudness of conflict, saying that they should get along and just get things done. But not on my issue. Don't compromise on my issue. That's something we shouldn't get things done on. And that's really, really complicated across the infinite issue set that Congress has to deal with. And we need to be honest about those expectations. Yeah. So it seems that we started with the Constitution and we admit that it creates a whole bunch of kind of implicit expectations about what representatives or senators are supposed to do for their job. But those things are manifold and they're not prioritized. And then on the other hand, we have the voter who you can show up at the ballot box and cast your vote for any reason you feel like. You know, you may say, I like this person because they just have better hair or, Mm -hmm. you know, that guy seems really cheesy. So I am voting for her instead. doesn't have anything to do or it may be based on identity issues, partisanship, angrier at a party. The in party's doing bad. I hate them, so I'm going to vote for the out party, which means, again, the criteria for what these people should do once they come to Washington, D.C. is anything but clear. Yeah, this is where you quickly realize that the power is in the voters and that as powerful as we think these lawmakers are, and they are, they have more power unilaterally than than we average citizens do. They can affect more change in a day than we can in a year outside the chambers. This is where you really realize the power is with the voters, right? And that it's their job because of the electoral connection, the fact that we have, there's no elections by fiat, that they're chasing the opinion of voters whose opinions are all over the map. And so you're chasing groups, you're trying to motivate them, you're mostly trying to get them to pay attention to the same thing at the same time, and it's just impossible. And then to your point, when they get in the voting booth, you have no idea what the hell they're going to care about that day and to to what degree, or if they're going to show up at all. And so it's their whole job to try to aggregate those collective interests, weigh them against the trade-offs that only they are paying attention to or have the information to make calculated decisions and riskful choices about. And then try to choose what's best for their constituency while weighed against their what they know to be best for the state while weighed against what they think is best for the country. 
And that those things can often be competing interests. And that makes the job really, really hard. And it puts the default position to be frustrated, right? Because you can't satisfy everyone at once. And this is what Congress always faced. This is why it's really, really hard to get Congress's approval rating above the 20% mark. Because it's an impossible job. And our default is to always, with something as as conflict-ridden as politics, to just be upset. Someone go satisfy my interests and do that across 435 districts, 50 states, 350 million people on an infinite number of issue areas. Throw in some, sprinkle in some partisanship in there too. And yeah, we're it's a really, really tough job. Yeah, and we can't forget about the myriad interest groups out there, some of whom contribute to the election campaigns of members and, of course, want to see that the members are doing things for them. All of which is to say is the ambiguity around the job description of representative and senator and the myriad demands upon them by the diverse public and all the slivers thereof would seem to create quite the market for elected officials to engage in symbolic action, doing stuff to make it make voters feel good, whether it's giving speeches or introducing resolutions or showing up at ribbon cuttings or tweeting certain way or holding open houses or or what have you. Yeah. And this gets to the point of what they actually do with their hours, right? Of where they spend their time. So if it's hard enough, and I think we can, we can see just based on though Congress does get a lot done more than we think it does, how hard it is to get bipartisan solutions on really controversial partisan topics. You're incentivized to go and knowing that your job is dependent on voters choosing you again and again, you're incentivized to go do non-legislative things messaging, getting out in front of them. And this speaks to a myth about that members don't work hard or that that when they're on recess, we always hear the recess, that they, they take the month of August off or they only work Tuesdays through Thursdays, things like this, that members are not actually doing anything for the American people. They'll tell you individually, one by one, every single one of them will tell you like, it is really hard that recess ain't recess the way we think about it. They're not going to play and tag with their buddies or flag football out in the yard. They're out there speaking to every group that they can get in front of, every Boy Scouts of America, every young farmers of Des Moines group that asks for their attention. They try to meet constituents where they are. They have huge constituent service operations to help people with their visa requests or their social security checks or filling potholes, taking and hearing their questions so that they cannot be labeled as gone Washington or disconnected from the district. And so it creates, there's this myth out there that they don't get anything done in DC. That's not true. There's also a myth that because they're not in DC all the time, every single day, that they're just sitting on their, their lazy boy watching Denver Broncos highlights. That's not true either. And so we need to have this. This just stems from the, the the default of being discontent and looking for reasons to blame people when we don't feel represented. It's just it's a thankless job and why we see a lot of people, despite running for it, throwing themselves in public life, raising a bunch of money, why they're not long for it. Right. That they get in it for the best reasons. And then often the times if they don't like the incentive structure or the things that actually do take up their days, not solving the problems that they, they promise to go deliver, then they go look for other work. It's a tough cycle. And I completely get it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the irony is that while they are back in their home states or their home districts running around meeting gro- groups, listening to the voters, 
they are not in Washington, D.C., and they cannot vote on legislation. They cannot hold hearings. They cannot you know, approve a treaty. They can't do a whole lot of the things. So it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. All right, Professor Casey Berger, co-author of the book, Congress Explained. Thank you for explaining to us the conflicted, confusing, impossible roles of representatives and senators. My pleasure. That was awesome. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you'll share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.